Hey everyone, I'm Dan Cortler, the host of TED Climate. Each episode, we unpack the problems and solutions of climate change. This season of the show, we're getting into some big ideas that make us optimistic about the future, like meat grown from cells and leather made from mushrooms. And the best part? We look at how building a greener future can be an upgrade instead of a sacrifice. Find and follow TED Climate wherever you're listening to this. This is a CBC Podcast. Hi, I'm Bob McDonald. Welcome to Quirks and Quarks and our annual holiday book show. If you're looking for a special book for a special someone, today you'll hear from the authors of some new science books that might inspire you, including the story of what we've learned about planets, near and far, ordinary and exotic, like one with these incredible conditions. Diamond, for some reason, at those specific conditions has the same properties that water does at the surface where the solid is slightly less dense than the liquid. So you'd have floating diamond icebergs on a diamond sea. And a new book that catalogs the underappreciated discoveries of groundbreaking women scientists. I realized that there's this big, almost like a secret history of discovery that I didn't know about. And women from all over the world were involved. Plus, an exploration of what we can learn from animals about living to a healthy old age. Evolution is smarter than you are, and it will have come up with some solutions to some of the processes that cause us to age that are better than we already have. All this and more on the Quirks and Quarks Holiday Book Show. Jim Morrison of The Doors once sang, No one here gets out alive. But while that's unquestionably true, most of us do want to hang around as long as possible and be as healthy as possible while we do it. Today in Canada, most people can expect to live into their 80s, which is a huge jump from just 100 years ago. So our lifespan has increased. Unfortunately, what some researchers call our health span has not kept pace. That's less true, though, of many animals whose health span tends to better match their lifespan, even when that lifespan is extreme, far longer than human life. And Dr. Stephen Ostad, one of the world's leading authorities on aging in animals, thinks that by understanding how animals get old, we might be able to age a little more gracefully ourselves. His new book, Looking at This, is called Methuselah's Zoo, What Nature Can Teach Us About Living Longer, Healthier Lives. Dr. Ostad, welcome to Quirks and Quarks. Well, thank you. It's very nice to be here. Well, humans are already pretty long-lived, not as long as Methuselah, but what made you think we might be able to learn from animals about the secret to a long and a healthy life? Well, we've been studying aging for the last 50 years in in a very scientific, molecular way. But I did notice there are animals out there that not only live longer, but by the mechanisms that we understand underlie aging, actually combat the aging processes better than humans do. And I think that looking to the natural world, you know, I like to think of evolution is smarter than you are, and nature, that is, is smarter than you are. And it will have come up with some solutions to some of the processes that cause us to age that are better than we already have. Well, your book is just filled with a long list of animals, many different species, different size, different environments that have very long lifespans. What are some of your extreme examples? Well, probably my favorite example is a clam. 
called the ocean quahog, and it lives over 500 years. It can live over, in fact, we, it may live even longer. The oldest clam that we know about lived 507 years, but it was killed by a researcher who didn't know how old it was and uh, scooped the insides out to just uh, examine the shell and only later because you can identify the age of clams from growth rings in the shell only later realized that this clam had been alive for over 500 years. So what's the clam secret to living 500 years? Well, we're not sure what all of its secrets are, but one of the secrets that we have discovered is one of the things that goes wrong with people, actually with all animals as they get older, is that the proteins that run their chemical reactions inside all of their cells start to misfold. And proteins only work when they're folded very precisely, somewhat like origami. But as proteins get older and they get bashed around inside the cells, they lose that precise folding. And when that happens, they tend to clump together and that causes damage. In fact, it's the clumping of cells together or uh, proteins together that are the uh, plaques and tangles of Alzheimer's disease and a number of other neurological diseases as well as muscular dystrophy. And one of the things we discovered about the clams is that they have something in their cells that prevents this kind of protein misfolding and clumping together. So they have some secret that could potentially lead to a treatment for things like Alzheimer's disease and Parkinson's disease. And it's kind of ironic because they don't even have brains. So it would be ironic if something without a brain could solve one of humans' worst brain diseases. Well, one of the things that uh, seems to be connected in your book with longevity is just living in water like the clams. So what can we learn from other long-lived aquatic organisms? All the longest-lived animals that we know about live in the ocean. And I think the secret to that is probably because the ocean is such a stable environment. One thing we know about evolution is that in very stable environments, that tends to facilitate the evolution of long life. So there are fish that live into their 200s. There are sharks that live maybe almost 400 years. And they do this by a couple of mechanisms. One of the ways they do it is just by slowing everything down. So the shark that's of most interest to us is the Greenland shark. They live very, very long, but they do everything very slowly. Their top swimming speed is about the walking speed of an 80-year-old. Now, the interesting thing about the Greenland shark is not just that it lives up to almost 400 years. They don't even start reproducing until they're 150 years old, which I find absolutely remarkable. Well, the ocean is also home to the largest animals on Earth, so... What role does size play in longevity? Yeah, that's a very interesting question. One of the most robust patterns in nature is the relationship between size and longevity. Species that are larger generally live longer than species that are smaller. And this would suggest that whales might be the longest live mammals. And in fact, they are the longest live mammals. But there's an interesting uh, number of exceptions to that. It's not just, by the way, mammals that you find this uh, pattern in. It's true in birds. It's true in mollusks. It's true in reptiles. It's true in amphibians. And we're not exactly sure what unites 
all of this. But what we are sure of is that these very large, very long-lived animals have a great deal to teach us about aging, and particularly about avoiding cancer. How so? Well, if you think about cancer as being a transformation that could potentially occur in any cell of your body, then an animal that has hundreds of times the numbers of cells that we do would have to have dramatically better cancer protection. Otherwise, they would get cancer when they were very, very young. But at least in the longest live whales, which live into their 200s, they seem to have found a way around that. So it's a very active research area now of looking at these large animals, trying to figure out what specific tricks they have for delaying cancer until very late in life. Now, you also mentioned with the Greenland shark that uh, it moves slowly. So what about metabolism or things like hibernation where they really slow down? Yeah, that's very interesting. So we know quite a bit about that from bats. And the longest live bat, the one that lives uh, into its 40s in the wild, does spend a significant fraction, more than half of the year, in hibernation. And hibernation does seem to be kind of a timeout in aging. And so that may contribute to the longevity of the bats. It doesn't explain the whole story because non-hibernating bats also live a long time. But it seems to contribute And there's another feature of hibernation that is something that we could also learn from. And that is when we're bedridden for some reason, a major surgery or major illness, for any length of time, our muscles deteriorate very quickly so that when you get out of bed, very difficult sometimes to stand up, much less uh, walk. But think about bats. They might hibernate for six months and they wake up and they fly away. There's very little deterioration in their muscle or in their heart in that time. And we think we have a great deal to learn about how they preserve their muscle strength and their heart uh, ability to function well after being inactive for that long. Now, we humans are uh, sort of proud of our large brains. Uh, What does brain size have to do with longevity? Yes, I think we're so proud of our large brains that we tend to attribute every bit of human success to it. And there has been a theory that's not really body size that's the key feature in living a long time. It's brain size. And of course, because bigger animals tend to have bigger brains, that would make a lot of sense. But it also makes sense from a certain perspective that your brain really governs pretty much everything that goes on in your body. And so there arose this whole brain theory uh, of aging that like the body size itself, there are numerous exceptions. However, when I looked into this a few years ago, I did something that none of the previous researchers had done, which I said, well, we're assuming there's something special about the brain. What about the liver? What about the kidneys? You know, what about the heart? Do those things also correlate with aging as well as the brain does? And in fact, I found that these other organs also seem to correlate. But there was one interesting exception. In the primates that have among the largest brains of all of the mammals, brain size did seem to correlate with longevity much better than in in any of the other groups in which it was no better than liver or kidney size. So there may be something special 
then brains may be particularly important to primates, which as a group are long-lived. Um, even your average organ grinder monkey can live 40 or 50 years. So throughout your book, you point out how much we could learn. But is there anything that we have already learned from long-lived animals, particularly about living healthily into old age? 95% of all of the medical researchers that are researching how to keep us healthy longer are working on mice. And so I think they're not going to find something. But what's starting to emerge from these other animals, the small studies, are that there are particular chemicals that they produce that may be related to chemicals that we produce as well, but they're slightly different, that could contribute to their longer lives. And the one I'm thinking about right now is that naked mole rats have a particular form of hyaluronin, which is something that's found in your skin. It basically is what makes your skin smooth. It sort of holds things together. And hyaluronin is actually used in a lot of cosmetic products. But the naked mole rat has a special kind of hyaluronin that's got much larger molecules. And a lot of evidence from looking at their cells in a dish suggests that this may be a secret to their cancer resistance. One of the things I didn't mention is that naked mole rats very seldom get cancer, even as long as they live. And so that's something that seems to be about to move into human trials. There are other things that we're learning that we're not quite ready for prime time yet with the whales. We know that they have some special molecules that repairs their DNA better than ours when it's damaged. We haven't yet figured out how to turn that into something that would be, let's say, taken in a pill, but people are working on it. Why in humans do women live longer than men? Boy, that is a good, good question, Um, because it's a really universal pattern. When I started looking into this, I looked in different historical periods, women live longer. During times of famine, women live longer. During times of epidemics, women live longer. They live longer under virtually every circumstance. And it's not just that they survive better when they're older. Female babies are less likely to die in the first year of life than male babies. And in fact, if babies are born prematurely, a risk factor for dying is being a male. So this is a difference that exists even in the uterus. Now, it may have something to do with hormones. You know, women have a lot of estrogen, and estrogen has a number of protective properties. But it's hard to imagine that estrogen explains why female babies are less likely to die than male babies. So there's a big hole, a big gap in our understanding of this. But there's another factor that's probably equally interesting, which is even though women live longer, late in life, women tend to be sicker than men. And it may be that the men that would have been sick simply died earlier, but the men that survive into old age are on average healthier. Now, by the time that humans reach 100 years of age and fewer than one in a thousand people manages to live that long. There are about four women for every man left alive. 
Okay, well, we're almost done here, but before we go, I have to ask you about your $1 billion wager. <laughs> Tell me about that. So this is a wager that I have with a demographer, Jay Olshansky. It came to be in the early 2000s when a reporter at a national meeting um, asked a group of us, well, when are we going to have the first 150-year-old person? And none of us wanted to go out on a limb, so we sort of shuffled our feet and looked down at the table and didn't answer. But I guess I'm not very good at dealing with lengthy silences. So I finally said, I think that person is already alive. And my demographer friend, he said, you don't really believe that. You just said that, right? And I said, no, no, I, I really do believe it. So he said, let's have a bet. So the nature of the bet is this, that if at least one person has lived to 150 years old, and it's bound to be a woman, by the year 2150, and is mentally intact enough to carry on a conversation, then I win all the money. We each put $150 into a, an investment account for 150 years, at which time we uh, mentioned some people who are to judge this. If someone at least has lived 150 years, then my family or I, in the best case, get all the accumulated money. And we calculated that at the historical rate of growth of the stock market, that that would turn into about $500 million. Well, that wasn't a great round number. So we decided to double the bet. Now that would turn into a cool $1 billion, which uh, my descendants, or in the best case scenario, I might win. And if there is no one, uh, then Jay's descendants would get the money. That's the longest running wager I've ever heard of. Dr. Osted, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. It's been a pleasure speaking with you. Dr. Stephen Osted is a distinguished professor of biology at the University of Alabama at Birmingham and the senior director for the American Federation for Aging Research. His new book is called Methuselah's Zoo, What Nature Can Teach Us About Living Longer, Healthier Lives. It's become something of a tradition on our holiday book show to invite science writer and bibliophile Dan Falk to tell us about some of his notable books of the year. Dan's also the co-host of the Book Lab podcast, and here's the first of his reviews. You may have caught Bob's recent interview with Robert Sapolsky, who wrote a book called Determined, which argued against the existence of free will. Well, if you'd like to hear an alternative point of view, you might want to check out Kevin Mitchell's new book. It's called Free Agents, How Evolution Gave Us Free Will. Mitchell is a neuroscientist, and as the title suggests, he's very interested in the role that evolution played in bringing the first thinking creatures into existence. As Mitchell sees it, when the first primitive life forms appeared on our planet billions of years ago, it was the first small step toward agency. The decisions that those first simple creatures made can be thought of as the beginnings of what we now call free will. What I found especially interesting is that, even though there's a lot that Mitchell and Sapolsky agree on, they reach diametrically opposite conclusions. For example, Sapolsky argues that you shouldn't be held responsible for things that you can't control, like your biology. Well, Mitchell agrees that we're biological creatures, but the way he sees it, it's biology that allows us to weigh alternatives and choose the best course of action. The laws of nature don't negate our freedom, but rather they enable it. That was Dan Falk with his review of Kevin Mitchell's Free Agents, How Evolution Gave Us Free Will. 
Dan will be back with more reviews later in the program. As solid as the ground beneath your feet is a fairly common cliché, but probably not one much used by planetary scientists, because they're all too aware that the ground beneath our feet is far from simply solid. It's complicated, dynamic, and variegated, and it can tell us a lot about our past and our future, admittedly mostly on geological timescales. But understanding the ground beneath our feet on our own planet, not to mention the other planets in our solar system and beyond, is not easy, because that ground is inconveniently opaque. So it takes considerable ingenuity to look deep inside it. But scientists like Canadian researcher Dr. Sabina Stanley have been up to the challenge. And in a new book, she outlines what we've learned as we've probed the interior of our planet and begun to do the same with other planets as well. Her book is called What's Hidden Inside Planets. Dr. Stanley, welcome back to our show. Thanks so much. Happy to be here. Now, you start writing the book uh, talking about your hometown being annihilated by a cosmic impact. Tell me about that. Yeah, I think it's amazing to think now that the entire reason for my hometown existing is that 1.8 billion years ago, a giant meteor slammed into the surface of the Earth in a town that's now Sudbury, Ontario, Canada, uh, created a large melt pool, and that brought up a bunch of resources from the interior that are now used um, and collected through mining. So I really grew up in a place where planetary science was surrounding me everywhere. I just, I didn't really know it at the time, but I think subconsciously my brain was telling me planetary science is important to you. (laughs) Now, as I mentioned in the introduction, planets are not transparent, so you and scientists like you have to invent ways to see inside planets. Take me through some of those. Yeah, we have to be really sneaky. It's really unfortunate, you know, like your your first instinct, I want to see what's inside the planet. Okay, let's dig down. And like the deepest you can go is about 10 kilometers if you're if you're digging into the surface of the earth or drilling into the surface of the earth. So that's not going to help us when our planet's uh, from the surface to the center is about 6,400 kilometers, right? So you got to do something else. And it turns out we use a lot of methods that you might be used to if when you go to the doctor, right? If you go to your doctor, hopefully the first thing they don't decide to do is drill in to see what's wrong with you, what ails you, <laughs> right? So they're going to use some kind of scans. They're going to use MRIs or CAT scans or waves that travel through the human body and that can be used to diagnose what's happening in the inside. We do the same for the earth. We use, for example, gravity fields. The gravity as you uh, measure it, as you walk around the planet, can tell you about the mass below your feet. We use magnetic fields to learn about the core. And we use seismic waves, so waves that travel through the Earth when an earthquake happens to learn about the structure and the composition of the Earth. Now, speaking of uh, seismology, you are a co-investigator on the Mars InSight lander which carried a seismometer. What has it told us about what's going on inside Mars? Yeah, what an amazing mission, right? A lander lands on Mars, and then it has to take this really sensitive instrument and place it on the surface of Mars. And it did that, and we've measured Mars quakes on Mars, hundreds of them. So what that tells us, a few things. First of all, it tells us that Mars is tectonically active. There are processes happening on the surface that are causing Mars quakes. Another thing it tells us, Luckily, we got a few big ones for Mars, big earthquake or Mars quakes, I should say. And they trap when you have a bigger Mars quake, the waves can travel 
deeper through the planet before they reach the seismometer. And so we were actually able to tell what the radius of the core is on Mars, the iron core. We found it's actually a little bit bigger than we were thinking, which actually means that the core is a little bit lighter than we thought, which means there's, there's some stuff in the core aside from the iron and the nickel that we weren't necessarily expecting with how we understand how planets form. So we're trying to figure that all out now. Now, you, you can detect how fast the waves travel through the planet. How does that give you the structure inside? So it turns out that the wave speed from a seismic wave is completely related to the density of the material it's passing through, as well as some other material properties. So we can use that to figure out how dense it is. And then from density, we get the mass and the likely composition. So you can tell if something's iron or if it's a, a silicate rock, for example. Okay, that was Mars, where you actually got to put a seismometer on the surface. But this brings us to your planetary nemesis, the one that you actually hold a grudge against. So you want me to name it? I'll name it. Go for it. Venus. Venus is the worst planet in the solar system. <laughs> I'm just going to put that out there. Okay, why is Venus that? Venus is the worst. As a planetary scientist who's really interested in studying the insides of planets, Venus is just so non-cooperative. It's amazing. Every single method we have used to study the insides of planets does not work at Venus. It's so frustrating. So I'll give you some examples. Uh, let's say we want to use magnetic fields like we do on Earth and other planets. Venus doesn't have a dynamo generating a magnetic field, so we can't use that to learn about the interior of Venus. Another method we use is when a planet's rotating, it actually bulges, right? So the Earth is wider at the equator than it is at the poles. And the amount of bulge can actually tell us about the structure of the interior. Then you get to Venus. Venus rotates so slowly that it has no bulge. And so we can't use that to learn about the interior structure. Then maybe you want to put a seismometer on the surface of Venus so that you can measure Venus quakes. Unfortunately, the surface is hundreds of degrees and a horribly corrosive environment. The atmosphere is horrible and no uh, equipment can survive there for very long. So forget about being able to measure Venus quakes. So it's just very frustrating when you're trying to learn about what's going on inside Venus. Okay, let's move out into the outer solar system where things get more exotic. You also talk in your book about helium rain and ice like we've never seen naturally on the Earth. Yeah, one of my favorite things about studying the insides of planets is that because the pressures and the temperatures are so high inside planets, materials just become completely new things down there, right? You take something you think you know at the surface of the Earth, water, for example. And yeah, we know what water's like when it's liquid in like a lake. We know what water's like when it's frozen in ice. We know when it's water vapor. But you put it under high pressure and temperature and completely different phases of water can occur. So for example, in uh, Uranus and Neptune, water actually becomes a sort of what we call a super ionic solid where the oxygen atoms in H2O uh, form this lattice, this grid structure, and the hydrogen atoms in the H2O just flow freely between the oxygen. It becomes this black opaque material that's really good at conducting electricity, and it's just not something we experience here on the surface of Earth. And what's helium rain? So in the atmosphere of Jupiter and of Saturn, helium and hydrogen are mixed nicely together, right? It's kind of like if you were to mix sugar in warm water or salt in water. Uh, and there's about 75% hydrogen, 25% helium in the atmosphere. Now, as you go deeper into both Jupiter and Saturn, uh, and the hydrogen is getting 
under higher and higher pressure, higher and higher temperature, it transitions to this metal phase I talk about, metallic hydrogen. Now, when that happens, turns out that helium no longer likes to be mixed in with the hydrogen. It's like, no, I don't want to play with you anymore. And so it actually separates out from the hydrogen. But helium's heavier than hydrogen. So if it separates out, it's going to sink. And so there are actually helium droplets that form inside Jupiter and Saturn and then rain out of the metallic hydrogen. It's, it's really hard to believe that you're talking about real places here. They just seem so alien. Right. It's so true. You know, and it, the same sort of weird things, there are all sorts of weird things happen right below our feet. You know, we, we sometimes think we have to go so far away to see these strange phenomena. And no, there's tons of strange phenomena right here inside the Earth. <laughs> well, let's get out of our solar system altogether. And mm -hmm. uh, you write about exotic environments on planets going around other stars where we might see things like diamond icebergs. Yeah, so we can even see those in our solar system, possibly. So when you have planets that have a lot of what we call ices, things like water, ammonia, methane, so think of Neptune, for example, uh, and again, you put water, ammonia, methane under high pressures, and you ask, what happens to those materials? Uh, people have done some uh, theory and experiments on materials like that and found that if you put them under the high pressures that you would find in an ice giant like Neptune and like many exoplanets out there, uh, the carbon that you find in methane actually separates out and would produce diamond, but with the temperatures that would make it liquid. So you could have things like diamond seas in the deep interior of Neptune and other ice giants. And you would at the boundary even also find diamond icebergs floating on the diamond seas because diamond, for some reason, at those specific conditions has the same properties that water does at the surface where the solid is slightly less dense than the liquid. So you'd have floating diamond icebergs on a diamond sea. What a gem of a planet. <laughs> <laughs> well, we now have some pretty interesting space-based tools to look at uh, planets going around other stars like the James Webb Space Telescope. I'm sure you'd like to have a seismometer on some of those exoplanets, but they are a little far away. So how can we practically learn what's going on inside them from so far away? Yeah, great question. So what I'm most excited about from JWST is that it's going to be able to measure the composition of the atmospheres of a lot of these planets. And if you know what the atmosphere is made of, because the atmosphere is essentially a product of what's going on inside the planet, uh, we can use that to learn about the interior of the planet. It's also going to help constrain things. If you know how, how massive the atmosphere is, then you know how massive the rest of the planet is. So you can tell, is it an iron planet? Is it a rock planet? Is it a water planet? So J JWST is really going to revolutionize our understanding of the interior structure of exoplanets. What's the most exotic exoplanet that you've come across? Oh, gosh. You know, I love hearing about these exoplanets that are so close to their parent stars. So they, they, you know, orbit their star closer than Mercury does in our solar system. And they zip around the star that, you know, they have like three day orb, three day orbits there, right? So they, their year is three days long. And they're so hot that you can have things like rock rain in the atmosphere. They have clouds made of titanium and things like this just because the temperatures are so hot. I think that's really cool. I don't necessarily want to go visit them. Uh, I don't think they're a good vacation spot, but they're really cool to think about. Well, we still have a lot to learn in our own solar system here, and there are some 
some planetary exploration missions coming up. What are you particularly looking forward to? Oh, there are so many exciting missions coming up. I'm going to highlight the Dragonfly mission. So there is one other object in our solar system that has a thick nitrogen-based atmosphere like Earth does. And that object is the moon Titan, which is orbiting Saturn. Now, Titan's a really cool place because not only does it have this thick nitrogen atmosphere, uh, but gravity is really low on Titan because it's a small body. And so that means if you combine a thick atmosphere and low gravity, that means it's really easy to fly there. So you could strap some cardboard on your arms and flap them and you would get to fly on Titan. So it's a really cool place to think about. But I think a lot of times our exploration of space is tied to wanting to know, you know, is there life out there? And Titan might be one of those places where life could have formed or could form. It seems to have all the ingredients. So for example, on Earth, we think for life, it was really important that there was liquid water available, that there were molecules made of carbon and hydrogen that could, um, in the liquid water, dissolve and become even longer chains of molecules, eventually amino acids and proteins, when they have an energy source. So you need an energy source, you need complex molecules, and you need water. Turns out Titan has all of those things. Uh, Titan has a global liquid water ocean below its surface. Uh, It's got heat sources, and we know it has these complex hydrocarbons on the surface. So we're really excited to see, are we going to see potential signs of life or an environment that's conducive to life when we go visit Titan with Dragonfly? And Dragonfly is going to be a flying vehicle. Dragonfly is the coolest space vehicle I've ever imagined in my entire life. I I should mention I'm not involved in the mission, but I'm just a super fan of the mission. Um, So imagine essentially a drone, but it's it's essentially a dual quadcopter. So it has eight copter blades that zip around and it has skis. And so it's going to land places. The surface is like a really hard, solid ice. So it has to land on on the surface. It's going to do a bunch of measurements, and then it's going to go up into the atmosphere again, fly around and scout out a new place to go, travel there, land, and do more science. So this is really the first time we're going to be able, with a mission, to cover a lot of ground on the surface um, and do science at all these different places right in contact with the ground, then go back up cover more ground, go back down. So it's really exciting. Well, back in 2015, you were on our 40th anniversary program talking about the last 40 years of planetary science, which was kind of all of it. Uh, So what do you think the next 40 years look like to you? A few things I'm excited about. So NASA, in its next decadal um, survey, so its plans for the next 10 years, one big thing in there is a new mission to Uranus. And I have to say, of all the planets in the solar system, our farthest planets, Uranus and Neptune, get the least love, right? They've only been visited by a single spacecraft. That's Voyager 2. Uh, It went by a quick flyby of the planets, and that's all the data we got. And so we really need to go there and do an in-depth study of these planets, because a lot of the planets that we're finding uh, outside of our solar system are, we believe, are quite similar to the ice giant. So it's almost like going to Uranus is like going to an exoplanet in our solar system. Well, Dr. Stanley, thank you so much for the book, and thanks for telling us about it. Thanks so much. This has been fun. Dr. Sabina Stanley is a planetary scientist and Bloomberg Distinguished Professor at Johns Hopkins University in Baltimore. Her book is called 
What's Hidden Inside Planets? I'm Jordan Heath-Rawlings, host of The Big Story. For six years now, we've been telling one story a day, every one of them about something that matters to Canadians. This spring, though, we're going deeper. The Big Story presents Pay Dirt, the inside story of Ontario's Greenbelt scandal. From political games to stag and doe parties, endangered species, RCMP investigations, and Las Vegas massages, you will hear the full story. The Big Story presents Pay Dirt. New episodes every Monday, and you can get them all by following The Big Story wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to the Quirks and Quarks Holiday Book Show. And now we've got another review from science journalist and the co-host of the Book Lab podcast, Dan Falk. There's something a bit funny about how we think of mathematics. A few people genuinely love math, but a rather large number seem to be put off by it. Eugenia Cheng sees that as a problem that we could have avoided. Her new book is called Is Math Real? Cheng is a mathematician and educator, and she's given a lot of thought to the question of why so many people seem to be wary of math. She believes the way that we teach math is a big part of the problem. All too often, math is presented as an array of facts that the student needs to memorize. And if the student asks why 2 plus 4 is the same as 4 plus 2, or why isn't 1 considered a prime number, or even are numbers real, the teacher is often stumped and asks the student not to worry about it. But Cheng is adamant that there are no dumb questions. In fact, even the simplest of questions can point toward profound insights. Cheng really wants us to see math as a creative pursuit, rather than as a rigid, purely logical endeavor. Cheng hopes that if we come to embrace a wider view of mathematics, it can be made more welcoming, and with that, more people will come to recognize the value of math in their own lives. That's Dan Falk with his review of Is Math Real? by Eugenia Cheng. Dan will be back with one more review at the end of our show. Chances are you've heard of famous physicists like Albert Einstein, Niels Bohr, and Robert Oppenheimer. You might even be able to name a few of their major scientific contributions. But you may not be as familiar with people like Margaret Burbage, Marietta Blau, and Wu Cheng Chung. Those three scientists all played a role in significant discoveries in physics and astronomy. So what's different about the second list? Well, for one thing, they're all women. For decades, the contributions of women in science have been overlooked, underestimated, or presented with unnecessary and burdensome hurdles. But despite that, women have pushed to break down the gender barrier. That's the story Canadian quantum physicist Shohini Ghosh tells in her new book, Her Space, Her Time. Dr. Ghosh, welcome to Quirks and Quarks. Thank you so much for having me. What made you want to document the history of women in science? Well, you know, growing up as a kid, when I started getting interested in physics and uh, astronomy, I didn't know of any of the names of the women in my book, and they certainly weren't in any of my textbooks. But then when I started digging deeper, I realized that there's this big, almost like a secret history of discovery that I didn't know about. And women from all over the world were involved, and they contributed to almost every major discovery we know of, as you were mentioning with 
things like the Big Bang or dark matter or discovering new particles in the universe and things like this. And they did it while they were facing all these challenges being women in a field dominated by men. So finding out about all of this was really inspirational to me. And I learned so many lessons from their journeys that I really wanted to bring this to the world. Well, I, I must say it was a lesson for me as well. Your book has so many women in it uh, that I'd never heard of before. It's a, a tremendous document of the history of science from an alternative point of view. Uh, what kind of obstacles have women scientists faced over the past several decades? Well, there's been all kinds of uh, uh, challenges. Back in the old days, of course, women were not even allowed to go to the main universities, places like Harvard and Oxford and Cambridge and so on. And even after that changed, there were other differences in the work workplace. Some of them even persist today, such as, for example, a gender wage gap. There's also sur uh, surveys that have shown that women all around the world still face differences in terms of how much uh, funding they get for their research or whether they have adequate support or get enough recognition even today for a lot of the contributions they make. And it also, of course, we know that women still spend more time on child care and home care than men do. So all of these kind of come together to create these, uh, you know, sort of systemic barriers and underlying a lot of this is, of course, some long-term stereotypes about roles that men versus women play, as in who's a good scientist, what are the skill sets that scientists have, the fact that women are not seen to have those skills. And so they are not perceived to be able to make those contributions. And these kinds of biases are what eventually lead to these inequities we see. But to me, it's all hopeful because maybe we can change all that. <laughs> One of the women you wrote about is uh, Joyce Neighbors, who calculated the trajectory of the rocket that put the U.S.'s first satellite, Explorer 1, into orbit in 1958. What hurdles did she face during her work? Well, uh, it was a huge achievement, what she did, of course. And she was actually the first woman uh, scientist to be part of that team uh, working on Explorer 1, directly with von Neumann, who was the famous scientist who headed the program. And sh her contribution was so crucial that she was actually asked to sign the mission chart, which only von Braun and a couple of other very important scientists were asked to do. So this was a real recognition of the critical role she played. But even at that point, they specifically asked her to sign only her initials because they didn't want a woman's name on the chart. So even at the peak of her uh, you know, achievement, she was facing this very direct sort of bias. And imagine being asked by your colleagues to not acknowledge your identity as a woman. So I, I, I'm amazed that she was able to continue and still persist in her career. Uh, she always fought for her right to be in physics and astronomy. She contributed to many other space programs during her career, eventually went on also to work at Lockheed Martin. But she did actually face those challenges throughout her career, and she knew that she had to fight to be there. And you point out in the book that her calculations were crucial to making sure that that satellite actually made it into orbit, because if it, if it didn't have the right trajectory, it, it would fall back to Earth or go off into space somewhere. Yes, and 
also, because it was the very first such mission, it's not like she had other examples to look to. And things that we take perhaps for granted now for, for those who are calculating these kinds of uh, missions today, they have the help of you know high-tech computers, lots of observations, and lots of missions that have already happened successfully. She didn't have any of that. So her achievement is really spectacular. Now, as you mentioned, you're including women from all over the world in your book. Why was that important to you? Well, I really wanted to um, acknowledge that science happens everywhere, of course, and women from all over the world have actually contributed. So I wanted to move away from the perhaps the more well-known kinds of histories of physics and astronomy that's based more on European history and North American history and really include the all these other people who have contributed because I really think that you know space and, and science is for everyone. Well, one of them is uh, Biba Chowdhury. Why did her story strike a special chord with you? Yeah, for me, she was a really special uh, person in this book because she is Bengali, like me. And when I was growing up in Bengal in India, I did not actually know her name. And yet, this was a woman who was involved in the discovery of two fundamental particles of nature. And she did her work uh, just before the war in uh, you know, British India. So there weren't a lot of resources. And during the war, she couldn't actually continue her work. And then after the war, a British physicist actually picked up on her work and used her technique and confirmed the discovery of this new type of particle called a pion. And this physicist, his name was Cecil Powell, went on to win the Nobel Prize for that discovery. Uh, Biva Chaudhary wasn't recognized for that work at the level of Nobel Prize, but she continued to also have a, an amazing career in physics. She was uh, the first woman ever to work at the most prestigious physics institute in India called the Tata Institute. She went on to be involved in this discovery of this other second uh, fundamental particle of nature called the neutrino and uh, you know just continued to do work was very very passionate about her physics did not get the kind of global recognition that i think she should have got and uh, you know even when i was a kid my, many many years later i certainly did not see her name in the textbooks but she is getting more recognized now and i hope in the future bengali kids and actually kids all around the world will be able to celebrate her and hopefully she'll become a well-known figure in physics <laughs> what do you think we lose when we make it harder for some people to enter and be recognized in these fields of science well as we know, we have all of these big global challenges, whether it's climate change or energy security, um, even information security. All of these actually require us to work together and we need innovative thinking. We need different perspectives. So if we don't allow everybody to contribute to the level that they are capable of, then who knows what kind of solutions and what kind of discoveries we might be missing out on, and who knows what kind of incredible minds may have already been lost, maybe another Marie Curie or another Einstein or another Biva Chaudhary. So science really needs everyone. What was the story of unrecognized women in science in your book that touched you the most? Wow, there were so many. Uh, one that I uh, remember being really amazed by because I didn't know about it, and it's really such an incredibly 
big contribution is uh, about these women who were based in uh, in Shiprock in New Mexico. And I was a graduate student and I did a lot of work around Los Alamos Observatory, uh, Los Alamos Labs there. And uh, I used to drive by Shiprock all the time. And I found out much later when I was writing the chapter about space exploration that there was a factory that was based in Shiprock, which is in the Navajo Reservation land. And the factory actually was owned by Fairchild Computers, which was the ancestor, in a sense, of uh, Intel. And Fairchild was actually making the first transistor chips at the time. So they built a factory in Shiprock where they uh, employed mostly Navajo women. And the reason that they built the factory there was, uh, you know, they they essentially could get cheap labor because there weren't a lot of uh, union laws or um, anything like that being enforced at the time. So they built the factory. These women were building these transistor chips by hand for new computers that NASA wanted to use for their space program and in particular the lunar landing. So these chips were really the innovation that allowed NASA to put computers on their spaceships. So the Navajo women were so good at this job that they were able to reduce the failure rates of these chips, which is, of course, a very, very important thing when you have just one shot to launch your rocket to the moon. (laughs) You write that some women in your book did stand up to powerful organizations and demand that they do better. Tell me about that. Absolutely. I think the that many of these women stood up for each other, called for more women to be allowed to participate in science, uh, and in particular, Margaret Burbage, who was uh, involved in actually developing this theory about how elements, fundamental elements in nature are formed in the hearts of stars, which is really a, a very important paper that she published, because it really explained why we have all the different elements in the universe that we do. So it was a huge piece of understanding the entire evolution of the universe. Um, So she was actually quite well known for this discovery, was uh, one of the leading figures in her time in physics and astronomy. Um, So she was actually given this award for women uh, that was actually set up by another woman, Annie Jump Cannon. But she famously refused the award because she felt that these awards were almost like consolation prizes and that women were not being considered for the general awards, such as things like the Nobel Prize. In fact, she was left out of the Nobel Prize that was awarded for this discovery. She was well aware of all of these issues. And so she took a stand very, very publicly And it got a lot of attention, started a lot of debate, and led to the creation of a committee for the status of women in astronomy. And that committee still exists today, and lots of changes were made, thanks to Margaret Burbage. That's what these women were standing for. Not only were they transforming physics and astronomy, they were also shattering glass ceilings and transforming society. Well, what changes would you still like to see in your field going forward? Well, um, this conversation has been going on for a while. As I said, these women started it a long time ago, and uh, there's been all kinds of initiatives to try to bring more women into physics and astronomy. Currently, I'd say the average is one in five students in physics in my own field is a woman. 
And so things like, you know, outreach camps for girls and mentoring and professional development in the workplace, work-life balance. These are the kinds of uh, approaches that have been ongoing for a long time. But I think that that's not enough because the way I see it, all of these are focused on the girls or the women and trying to get them somehow to be better, what I call the fix the woman approach. And that's never really going to change the system as a whole and all these biases that I was discussing. So mentoring is not going to make people somehow, you know, fix the gender wage gap or, you know, address questions around the lack of recognition and the bias about women's skills. So I think we need to address that issue. We need to think about policy level changes for structural issues such as differences in funding or differences in wages. But at the same time, think about how do we address these kinds of, you know, stereotypes and biases. These are not something that we can't change as a society. Well, Dr. Ghosh, thank you so much for the book and thank you for your time today. Of course. Thank you. Shohini Ghosh is a professor of physics at Wilfrid Laurier University and chief technology officer at Quantum Algorithms Institute. She's also the author of Her Space, Her Time. And now to wind up our holiday book show, here's science writer and co-host of the Book Lab podcast, Dan Falk, with one last review. Did you know that sperm whales are so loud they can stun their prey with sounds they make using their blowholes? Or that near the start of the COVID lockdowns in Britain, as city streets suddenly became very quiet, residents could hear the noisy lovemaking of amorous hedgehogs? Those are the sorts of factoids that fill Kaspar Henderson's new book, titled A Book of Noises. Henderson is a journalist based in the UK, and his book explores the world of sounds, both natural and human, in great detail. The chapters are short, and there's a lot of them, with straightforward titles like Volcano, Frog, Nightingale, or Bells. This structure may seem like a bit of a hodgepodge at first, but the book does have a nice flow to it, or rhythm if you prefer. There's a bit of irony in using words to describe sounds. I almost wished that the book came with a CD. Still, Henderson's enthusiasm for his subject is what really counts, and the result is a charming and fun book, one which may leave readers tuning in with a renewed awareness to the universe of sounds that surround them. Again, the book is called A Book of Noises, and the author is Kaspar Henderson. For Quirks and Quarks, I'm Dan Falk. Dan Falk is a science journalist and co-host of the Book Lab podcast. And that's it for the Quirks and Quarks holiday book show. If you'd like to get in touch with us, our email is quirks at cbc.ca, or just go to the contact link on our webpage at cbc.ca slash quirks, where you can read my latest blog or listen to our audio archives. You can also follow our podcast or get us on the CBC Listen app. It's free from the App Store or Google Play. Quirks and Quarks was produced by Leslie Amundsen, Olsi Sorokina, Amanda Buckowitz, Sonia Biting, and Mark Crawley. Our senior producer is Jim Lebens. I'm Bob McDonald. Thanks for listening. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.